Episode 34 of War in the Book of Mormon Part 6.9 Nephite Eastern Campaign Initial Reconquest Battle Analysis Second Battle of Gid For this episode, we return to the Eastern Theater, as that is the only active theater of the war remaining. It is important to note that Moroni, and apparently Amron, did not know this at the time though it is possible that Amron did know that he had lost all of the cities in the West as our episode begins. This is an episode about freeing prisoners. As I say that sentence, I hope that you can already see the metaphorical value of what we will discuss. At some point in time, we are all prisoners. Prisoners to sin and temptation. Prisoners to anxiety and depression. Prisoners to illness, injury, and physical limitations brought on by disability or age. Prisoners to emotions. Prisoners to disappointment of self or others. I hope that as we examine the details of the Second Battle of Gid, that we can reveal some useful truths for how we might confront our experiences with prisons and freeing prisoners. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Overview of the Campaign The last time that we discussed the East was episode 31 or part 6.6 when we were talking about the Third Battle of Mulek in the 28th year of the Reign of the Judges. Following that battle we are told of the efforts expended to make bountiful the most secure city of the Nephites, as Alma 53, verse 4, explains the increases in fortifications. It should be interesting to listeners of this podcast series that what is described in Alma 53, 4 was also described in Alma chapter 50, as the improvements implied to have been made to many or all Nephite cities. Obviously, in chapter 50, Mormon was writing about improvements that were to be made over the course of years and continued into the actual fighting of the Amalekiahite War. The information about the Eastern Theater continues in Alma 53, as we are told in verse 7 that Moroni also used his forces to help with the harvest, to deliver the women and children from famine and affliction, and to provide food for the armies. In Alma chapter 54, we have an exchange of epistles between Moroni and Amron that take place in the 29th year of the reign of the judges. There are two points that need to be emphasized here, or this exchange won't have the weight that it deserves. 1. This exchange is happening between Amron, the Lamanite head of state, and Moroni, the chief captain of the Nephite armies, political leader to military leader. Note that Bahoran, the chief judge and governor of the land, does not play a part in this exchange. Obviously, Moroni was authorized to conduct such negotiations without the need to refer to the governor of the land. This is a point that I mentioned previously when discussing the title of liberty, and I believe elsewhere as well, but also one that will come up again when we discuss Mormon's role in negotiations with the king of the Lamanites. It seems that the chief captain had authority to conduct a wide range of activities so long as they were connected to the armies or the security of the Nephite state. 2. 
This discussion happened after the destruction of the Lamanite army north of the city of Antipara in the west, and possibly also after the loss of the city of Cumani, or while that fighting was happening. Amron was thus aware of events that Moroni did not seem to be aware of. Amron was establishing a negotiating position that was not reflective of the reality of defeats that he was then facing. I expect that it was as a result of the losses in the West, as well as the loss of Mulek in the East, that Amron felt that he needed his warriors returned to him, so that he might have been able to retain Manti, and possibly Kumani, depending on the precise timing of the correspondence. Amron initiated the correspondence about exchanging prisoners. Moroni's response is a great one. It shows his temper and his frustration with the false claims of dissenters. His epistle goes from Alma 54, verse 5 to verse 14. I will not go into Moroni's intensity of language, but I do want to note that Moroni offered an exchange of one Lamanite fighter for one Nephite fighter, plus that fighter's wife and children. Amron responded with an equal level of anger and intensity of language from Alma 54, verse 16 to verse 24. Amron laid out the grievances of the Lamanites, which seemed quite common in the current era, where people lay claim to benefits that they have not earned, or wrongs that were not committed to justify actions that are otherwise unjustifiable. Most directly to the issue of prisoners, Amron agreed to Moroni's terms of prisoner exchange. Amron's threatenings and inaccuracies in his grievances further angered Moroni to the point that Moroni rejected the agreement regarding the exchange of prisoners, and he resolved to do a prison break of the city of Gid, where a lot of Nephite prisoners were held. So, in brief, the Second Battle of Gid is a prison break story. That story is told in Alma chapter 55, verses 16 to 27, specifically, but more broadly, the entirety of Alma chapter 55. Before moving on to the battle analysis, I want to make a few comments about prisoners in the Book of Mormon. They do play a part in a variety of stories. We have individual prisoners like Abinadi and Nephi 4 and Lehi 2. We have the collective servitude of the people of Limhi or the people of Alma in the land of Helam. And we have prisoners taken in time of war as we discuss here. It is interesting to note that at no point in the Book of Mormon, prior to the time of Mormon's leadership, is there a discussion on prisoner atrocities. In the previous episode, I discussed prisoners that seemed to be taken as war booty, which did not seem to be as much of a thing in the East as it was in the West. That may have been the result of geography, as the fighting in the West seemed to have taken place much closer to the lands of the Lamanites than did the fighting in the East, and therefore it made the carrying away of captives simpler. In the East, it seems that prisoners were treated generally well, and that they were kept in a semi-centralized location. The full story of prisoners of war in the Book of Mormon is unclear, and there is no record from a Nephite or Lamanite prisoner, and therefore we are left to try and piece together the conditions and reasoning behind the prisoner system of the two cultures at war. Moroni clearly did not use prisoners as booty, rewards, or as slaves. He did use them as laborers, and he also freed many in the last years of the war 
based on their entering into a covenant of peace. The exchange of letters between Moroni and Amron revealed the temper and frustration of Moroni. Prisoners have been a subject elsewhere, but the failure of the exchange of epistles is critical to understanding the context of the Second Battle of Gid. Moroni, in a moment of anger, said that he would, quote, seek death among the Lamanites until they shall sue for peace, close quote. That comes from Alma 55.3. The events surrounding this battle show that these words were uttered in frustration rather than as a true oath, as Moroni once again demonstrated his restraint in dealing with his opponent. Geographical Setting Location Gid was the primary city where the Lamanites kept prisoners in the east, as we are told in Alma 55.7. It is unclear where Gid lay in relation to the other cities, as this was never explained. Moroni did not attack this city because of its strategic position, as was the case with Mulek, so the city was not necessarily the next in line sequentially from Mulek. I assume that the order of cities taken by the Lamanites back in the 25th year of the reign of the judges that Mormon lists in Alma 51.26 was generally an order of cities from south to north. If that is true, then Moroni bypassed the city of Omner to get to Gid. It is unlikely that the cities were all immediately on the seashore, as the description is, quote, by the seashore, close quote. Omner is never specifically stated as being retaken by the Nephites, and it may be that occupation of Gid, like we saw in the previous episode regarding Manti and Zeezrom, made the defense of Omner untenable, and this meant that Moroni had no need to attack it directly. Gid was Moroni's focus, and the city must have been located such that keeping the Nephite prisoners there made more sense to the Lamanites than sending them back to the land of Nephi or keeping them in another city. Terrain and Vegetation There is no reference to the terrain or vegetation in this battle. Moroni had his army somewhat close to the city, as the spies he sent out were able to return and inform him of their success without a significant burden of travel, as expressed in Alma 55.15. And this meant that there must have been some wilderness relatively close to where Moroni could secret his army while waiting for the plan to work. Though this is neither terrain nor vegetation, the most significant shaping feature is that all of the preparation for this battle happened at night. Darkness was the physical means that Moroni used to gain a position of advantage over his opponent. Who was involved? Nephite forces. It is uncertain who was involved in this battle other than Moroni and his direct army. In the course of the war, I believe that Moroni probably commanded more than one of the 2,000-man armies. In this battle, this was probably true as well. Teancum was probably still in Bountiful, and Lehi too remained in Mulek. Moroni conducted this battle with his own army, or armies, and it was probably close to 4,000 warriors in strength. The biggest revelation in this battle narrative was the discussion of Lamanite members of the army, as mentioned in Alma 55.4. This was apparently not isolated to a few Lamanites, because they needed to mount a search to find a descendant of Laman. More on this point later. Lamanite Forces 
The Lamanite army was probably similar in size to the Nephite army, but it may have been a bit smaller, as this was a city garrison force and not necessarily a field army. I believe that the army in Gid was larger than a standard city garrison, as it had the additional responsibility of guarding the Nephite prisoners. This is why a number close to 4,000 is not unreasonable, though I do imagine that the Lamanite army was smaller. One of the reasons for this number is a point that we have made previously about guards in the ancient world. Because the weapons did not allow for engagement at a distance, the guard-to-guarded ratio was much higher in ancient times than in the modern era. This was one of the many reasons why prisoners, as a long-standing group, were so rare in the ancient world. It was simply too difficult to maintain and guard them. There were Lamanites within the walls of the city who both guarded the prisoners and those who were enjoying the benefits of living inside the city. There were also Lamanites outside the city as guards. These guard posts consisted of several Lamanites and must have served as early warning posts to inform the garrison of attack and to watch areas away from the main entrance to prevent the escape of prisoners. The spy network under the command of the local Lamanite chief captain seemed to not function, as there was no warning among the guards that a Nephite army was operating nearby. Key Leaders in the Battle Nephite Forces There are no additional leaders in this battle, but there is the addition of the Lamanite named Laman, who I will refer to as Laman IV, who was a former servant of the Lamanite king, as we are told in Alma 55.5. He was one of the servants who fled when the men of Amalickiah killed the king of the Lamanites and was also one of the men falsely blamed for the murder of the king, which was originally told in Alma chapter 47 verses 25 to 26, and we discussed in episode 24 or part 5.5 of this podcast series. He had every reason to remain with the Nephites and to fight against the armies of the Lamanites, which were led by the usurper Amalickiah and then his brother Amaron. Lamanite forces. No specific commanders are mentioned. Strategic and operational context. This entire battle began as Moroni had a desire to regain some of his people held prisoner by the Lamanites. He had been successful earlier in regaining Mulek and spent the early part of the 29th year of the reign of the judges in the epistle exchange between himself and Amaron. The year had progressed with no progression in the negotiations. The theater was at something of a stalemate. The importance of regaining the prisoners may have been linked to a difficulty of receiving reinforcements that was clearly expressed by Helaman too, as noted in our previous episode but we only clearly see the mind of the commanders in their letters. Otherwise, we might get a glimpse through the understanding of Mormon. If this was true, what do we learn from those statements or inferences? 1. Moroni needed reinforcements before he continued his attacks on Lamanite-controlled cities. 2. Moroni also wanted to limit losses, which meant he, at best, held a parity of force with his Lamanite counterpart. It seems clear that the Lamanites drew from a larger manpower pool and seemed to have the ability to throw army after army into battle and yet raise another one when needed. The Nephites apparently did not have the same luxury. Technical Context There are two technical items 
that I want to talk about in the story of this battle. 1. The search made by Moroni for a descendant of Laman, and not simply a Lamanite or a Lamanitish person. Why? There are many possible reasons for this specificity. First is the fact of appearance. Moroni wanted someone who looked like those they were seeking to deceive. This is the obvious reason, and initially the most important, as without a convincingly looking Lamanite, the ruse would have failed without even starting. The second possible reason is one of language. The various languages used within the Book of Mormon were addressed in Episode 10, or Part 2.4 of this podcast series, and there the dialectic nature of tribal languages was briefly referenced. It is probable that each of the various Lamanite subgroups had a specific dialect of Lamanite. It would be nearly instantaneous for another Lamanite to identify the tribal or familial affiliation of nearly any other Lamanite once they began to speak. Moroni wanted someone authentic who could speak and be perceived as a Lamanite without faking it linguistically. For the listener who thinks this is a stretch, I want to offer my experience living and working in the Middle East as an example. In Jordan, specifically, one Jordanian can tell what city or general area another Jordanian is from simply based off a greeting used or the pronunciation of a specific word. The same was true for both Iraq and the United Arab Emirates, in my experience. 2. The use of wine as a means of eliciting a response. Moroni could not hope to surprise all of the guards and kill them all before they could warn the rest of the guards. Thus, he needed to get them to behave in a desired manner. To do this, he used a stimulant specifically formulated to be potent, as we are told in Alma 55.13. If you recall, this is not the first time that wine was used nor will it be the last, as we will see. Tactical Events This battle is recorded in Alma chapter 55, verses 16 to 27. Moroni was angry, as we are told in Alma 55, 1, following the response from Amaron in reference to the exchange of prisoners, and he therefore sought to regain prisoners without providing a benefit to his opponent. Despite his threat, that was given in anger in Alma 55.3 to seek death amongst his enemies, Moroni almost immediately devised a plan that resulted in a bloodless battle. Though it is improbable that he entered the battle with that as the expected outcome, Moroni immediately began a search for a descendant of Laman among his men. He sent this man, along with others of similar ethnicity, to the city of Gid, where they deceived the guard and teased and enticed them to drink the strong wine they brought with them, as we are told in Alma 55, verses 8 to 12. The guards in question appeared to be at a single location on the opposite side of the city from the entrance to the city. This is unclear, as Mormon uses the word guards to sometimes seem to mean a relatively small group, and at other times to indicate all those responsible for the guarding of the Nephites. In this case, I believe that Mormon used the word guards to denote a small group at a single location of the wall around Gid, because if all of the guards had fallen asleep, what would have kept the Nephite prisoners from simply walking out and joining Moroni? 
This and the fact that getting all of the Lamanite guards to be equally foolish and to be equally greedy seems much less likely. Alma 55.11 also gives the impression that the Lamanite guards were being secretive in their use of the wine, as if they were hoarding it amongst a small group rather than sharing it at large. Even with all of this information, we are told in Alma 55.22, Now behold, this was done in the night time, so that when the Lamanites awoke in the morning, they beheld that they were surrounded by the Nephites without and that their prisoners were armed within, close quote. This implies that all or most of the guards were asleep as Moroni waited for them to wake in the morning. Regardless of who or how many, the guards in question drank freely of the wine and soon became drunken and sleepy. Laman Four and some of his men returned to the camp of Moroni to inform the chief captain of their success, Though not stated, it is probable that some of Laman Four's group remained behind to observe the sleeping guards and keep a watch on this critical part of the city. While the deception, elicitation, drinking, and drunkenness were happening, Moroni was gathering weapons of war, or it is possible that he had gathered a stockpile of such weapons beforehand, expecting such a stratagem to work. When Laman Four returned, Moroni was ready to march to the city with the extra weapons. Mormon never explains how Moroni communicated with those inside. It is unlikely that he simply threw weapons over the wall and the Nephite prisoners automatically understood the plan, especially when restraint was so critical. I suppose that some way or another, the Nephite military communicated with those held prisoner to explain the general scope and nature of the plan. This may have been as simple as speaking through pickets on the wall, or as complicated as a Nephite officer climbing over the wall and remaining with those inside to organize and lead the internal resistance. The Nephites inside the city were all armed, men, women, and children. Remember our previous discussion in episode 32 or part 6.7 on the ease of prisoners in this time coming up with weapons, One can expect that if the prisoners were informed of the plan, then they might have been able to rapidly make or manufacture weapons from a variety of materials present in the city. A table leg or other part of furniture could easily become a club, for example. Moroni's men and the prisoners acted in silence, allowing the guards to remain asleep. Mormon emphasized yet again through the behaviors and decisions that he showed of Moroni, the fact that Moroni did not delight in bloodshed. The actions of Moroni are placed as a direct contrast to Moroni's own oath made in anger. Moroni repositioned his army to surround the Lamanites on the outside of the walls of Gid, and he waited for morning and the Lamanites to wake. The second battle of Gid is a great example of the use of shock as a combat multiplier, as we see when the Lamanites awoke to being surrounded by the Nephite army without and armed Nephite prisoners within, the Lamanite leaders were so completely defeated that the chief captains demanded the weapons of war from their own warriors and willingly offered them up in surrender, as we are told in Alma 55.23. Moroni freed the prisoners... Quote, who were Nephites, close quote, and liberated the city, taking the Lamanite warriors as prisoners. I quote from Alma 55, verse 24, Now behold, this was the desire of Moroni. He took them prisoners of war, and took possession of the city, and caused that all the prisoners should be liberated. 
who were Nephites, and they did join the army of Moroni and were a great strength to his army, close quote. There is an interesting note here, as Mormon seems to imply that there were prisoners who were not Nephites. Who were they, and why were they kept prisoner? If they had been Lamanites opposed to the Lamanite king, then surely they would have been added to Moroni's army, as were Laman four and other Lamanites referenced throughout this story. It provides an interesting detail for further consideration. Battlefield Leadership Moroni developed and executed an innovative plan without flaw that saw the return of a city without killing anyone on either side. The innovation is important as it must have further strengthened Moroni's reputation among his own warriors, especially those who prefer to avoid death. It is also important to appreciate that in ancient warfare, battle and death were looked on as epic struggles and glorified in most cultures especially those in the Mediterranean world from which the Nephites and Lamanites derived their cultural heritage. How did warriors from such a heritage view the preventing of bloodshed when a devastating victory was so easy to achieve? This might have been an ancient point of contention between Moroni and some of his subordinates who adhered to more stringent measures for dealing with the Lamanites. I think it would be a mistake to imagine that every commander or warrior agreed with Moroni's approach to protecting lives, including enemy lives. Some people probably believed the Lamanites deserved violence and death. Moroni's efforts to preserve life throughout his command cannot be assumed as universally loved or agreed to. Moroni entered this battle with the plan to strengthen the Nephite prisoners inside so that they could fight and surround the Lamanites on the outside, so that the Lamanites perceived themselves as trapped. Moroni had the additional weapons prepared beforehand. He selected the group to conduct the initial elicitation with great care, and he conducted the entire operation in such a way as to generate complete shock throughout his opponents and their entire chain of authority. This was amazing leadership in terms of vision, preparation, and execution. Good job, Moroni. Significance. I am going to read a long passage from the end of Moroni chapter 55 to express the significance of the victory of this battle. As I have done before, I will periodically comment on key points as I go. The quote comes from Alma 55, verses 25 to 35. And it came to pass that he did cause the Lamanites, whom he had taken prisoners, that they should commence a labor in strengthening the fortifications round about the city of Gid. And it came to pass that when he had fortified the city Gid, according to his desires, he caused that his prisoners should be taken to the city Bountiful, and he also guarded that city with an exceedingly strong force." Note that Moroni continued a process that he directed Teancum to use after the fighting around Bountiful and one that he followed after the fighting around Mulek. Prisoners helped to strengthen the places where they had previously been stationed, and then they went to Bountiful, which seems to be the primary place for prisoners in the Eastern Theater. Continue, quote, And it came to pass that they did, notwithstanding all the intrigues of the Lamanites, keep and protect all the prisoners whom they had taken, and also maintain all the ground and the advantage which they had retaken. I need to interrupt again to emphasize once more that details matter. In this verse, Mormon refers to intrigues of the Lamanites. What intrigues? 
Mormon is telling us that we don't have the whole story, even in the Amalekite War. There are multiple engagements and intrigues happening. Some of the ideas expressed by Moroni or his subordinate commanders may not have been original Nephite ideas. They may have been initiated by Lamanites and then learned and used by the Nephites. The use of Laman Ford to deceive the guards may have first been employed by the Lamanite armies using a Nephite dissenter, for example. Or such things may have come after. Continue quote. And it came to pass the Nephites began again to be victorious and to reclaim their rights and their privileges. This seems like we have an inflection point at Gid. The curve of success turned and now the Nephites were on top. This battle returned prisoners to the Nephite armies, many of whom must have been people of standing within the Nephite community. Because at several other locations, the willingness of the Lamanites to take common people as prisoners is put into doubt. In the West, for example, they only took captains captive. This calls into question my previous description of the killing of Amalekiah or the victory at the Third Battle of Mulek as inflection points. It is possible that Mormon is writing poetically and that the corner was previously turned, but we might take this as it is, and note that it was after prisoners are freed that Moroni began to succeed. Continue quote, Many times did the Lamanites attempt to encircle them about by night, but in these attempts they did lose many prisoners. And many times did they attempt to administer of their wine to the Nephites, that they might destroy them with poison or with drunkenness. But behold, the Nephites were not slow to remember the Lord their God in this their time of affliction. They could not be taken in their snares, yea, they would not partake of their wine, save they had first given to some of the Lamanite prisoners. Note the use of the phrase, many times. There is a lot going on. I have captured more than a hundred battles referenced or hinted at in the Book of Mormon, but that count does not include these many times references. Continue quote. And they were thus cautious that no poison should be administered among them. For if their wine could poison a Lamanite, it would also poison a Nephite. And thus they did try all their liquors. For those wondering, yes, this would not be allowed under the current law of armed conflict. You cannot legally test something you believe may be poisonous on a prisoner of war. That said, these were different times. I regularly tell my students that it is foolish and unproductive to apply present moral and legal codes on previous eras. That is especially true in this case. Continue quote. And now it came to pass that it was expedient for Moroni to make preparations to attack the city Morianton. For behold, the Lamanites had, by their labors, fortified the city Morianton until it had become an exceeding stronghold. And they were continually bringing new forces into that city and also new supplies of provisions. And thus ended the twenty and ninth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. Close quote. Moroni was planning to retake the best defended city in the east. One should imagine that Amron was shifting forces from the west, which was being defeated or was already defeated to reinforce Morianton. Lessons learned military history. The lessons from this battle center on preparation and understanding, primarily 
on the power of achieving shock. Identification. Moroni understood the Lamanites. He knew what accent, what look, and what type of person would be ideal for eliciting the desired response. Those he selected also knew what to do, and especially what to say to inspire the proper response in the Lamanite guards. It is unclear whether Moroni intended for this to be a bloodless battle, but his preparation and plan allowed the Nephites to generate sufficient shock for such a victory to occur. Isolation. Moroni surrounded his opponent during the night. This is complete isolation. Suppression. The ability to provide weapons to the prisoners and to have the army surround the guards outside meant that when the Lamanites awoke, they had no maneuver option. If the Lamanites had chosen to fight, it would have meant each man fighting to create personal and then maybe collective maneuver space. Maneuver. Moroni created maneuver through total dominance of the physical battlefield. He held every position of advantage, both physically and psychologically. When the Lamanites looked around in the morning, they had no choice but to admit defeat. Destruction. The dominance by Moroni in gaining complete mastery in each area led to the obvious overwhelming shock by his opponent. The will of the Lamanites' chief captains was destroyed. When they woke, they saw their position both inside the city and outside the city. If they had thought about the dilemma, they might have determined a means of victory. But as it was, they only saw difficulty and thus defeat. Lessons Learned spiritual. What is to be learned from the details of this battle? I hope that the following lessons are useful. I want to emphasize that these are some lessons that I have derived, and they are not a comprehensive list of all possible lessons, or even those most applicable for you in your life as you listen to this. 1. Free the Prisoners The most important lesson in this entire story is the importance of freeing prisoners, and associated with that is how to free prisoners. I will spend the most time addressing this point, and I have a few points to follow. As I said at the beginning of this episode, we are all prisoners of one sort or another. We are either prisoners of sin or prisoners of less than ideally productive habits, and probably both. Because of that, we all need to be freed. The atonement of Jesus Christ was the preeminent exercise in freeing prisoners. Jesus then went on to free those in spirit prisons. Jesus is the ultimate person who frees prisoners. How does freeing prisoners work in this story? I think the most important point is that this is a story of empowering prisoners, Moroni didn't free them. Moroni gave the prisoners what they needed, weapons with which they could fight for their freedom. The same is true of the atonement. Jesus doesn't just free us from prison. Jesus makes a path possible that we can then choose to follow or not that will lead us to our freedom. We don't have to accept his atonement. We don't have to repent. We aren't forced or compelled. In essence, Jesus gives us the weapons we need, and he, like Moroni, places an army around the walls of the city to facilitate our escape and battle for freedom. As we seek to help other prisoners, we need to do the same. 
They need to receive the ability to fight even before they are fully free. We need to provide the tools for them to fight their way out. We need to place our army such that it is in position to support and facilitate their success so that we can overwhelm the enemy. Also, remember that often the enemy is other people who aren't themselves evil, but may unwittingly be sources of encouraging or supporting the imprisonment of our souls. They are not implacably evil. They are like us, ignorant, flawed, and in need of the love of God. We all need to be freed from prison, and we need to help those held prisoner so that they may assist in gaining their own freedom. It is necessary to arm those we want to free from the prison of sin or from the societal chains of Satan. 2. Calling the Right Person Moroni, quote, caused a search, close quote, to be made to select someone possessing the needed traits and abilities. The first thing Moroni had done was to determine what he needed in the person who would receive the assignment, and therefore the selection was made easy, and all that needed to be done was to find the person who met the requirements. It is as important that we know the traits needed to serve in a position as it is that we know who the right person is. The Lord does much the same thing in identifying the requirements for missionary labor, for example, in Doctrine and Covenants section 4, or also in describing the proper type of priesthood leader in sections 84 or 121. And he describes the traits of those who will be elevated in Second Peter chapter 2. Traits often come first with God, and then those traits are why he selects who he does. 3. Lull the enemy to sleep and surround with strength. Once again, we have a battle where one of the obvious lessons is surrounding the problem. Moroni did not face strength with strength, but he displaced his opponent's strength and then used the opportunity to completely surround and overwhelm the opponent. It is important to act as councils, companionships, families, wards, and other auxiliary organizations in concert to surround the adversary while he sleeps, and then to place him in a position of total weakness. 4. Function with a purpose. At no time did Moroni lose sight of why he was at Gid. Moroni was not a warrior in that he did not exist to fight wars, but rather he fought to serve a purpose. His purpose was achieved without any bloodshed, and thus he restrained those less charitable than himself. He epitomizes the counsel from Doctrine and Covenants 121.43, where we are counseled to reprove with sharpness or precision. Moroni conducts this battle with precision, and as such, he can achieve victory without slaughter. If we also fight our battles with the same sort of precision, then the spiritual casualties may also be non-existent, or at worst, minimal. Mormon's Metaphor How does this battle support it? Preparation. I feel like I need to gush about how great Moroni is as an example of preparation. He understood his need 
for the prisoners. He knew where they were. He devised a stratagem to release them. He searched for and found the ideal person. He had extra weapons. They provided those weapons to the prisoners, and he surrounded the city with his army. All of that is preparation. It is preparation of vision, understanding, planning, action, and consequences. You cannot get a better example than Moroni of preparing the battlefield. I sincerely feel that this is why Mormon places such great emphasis on this person in his record. We just cannot have a better example for this critical attribute. Obviously, I will be gushing again in the next episode, but that is the privilege of studying this period in the Book of Mormon. Covenants It is true, again, that covenants are not expressly mentioned in this story. But also, again, I believe that they are an important part of the story. Consider the risk that Laman Four took as he approached the guards around the city. Consider the dangers associated with casting weapons over the walls to the prisoners. Further consider what it was like for those prisoners who were surrounded by armed Lamanites and within the walls of the city as they waited for the dawn and the coordinated action with the Nephite army waiting outside that they hadn't seen and only believed was out there. Those prisoners had to have faith and hope that those who cast in the weapons were part of something more than a few dozen fighters who might have been setting the prisoners up for a suicide attempt to break out. We are those prisoners. We have been provided weapons, and we have made covenants with God, who is not in this prison with us, that if we will act with the weapons that we have been given, then eternal freedom is the promise. What a great image! This battle is simply a fantastic window into how the gospel functions in our lives. It is our ability to hold faith with our covenants that will help us to remain victorious or to regain victory. Unity. There is lots of unity in this story. There is the unity of a coordinated plan. There is the unity of the prisoners and the surrounding army. There's the unity of an army surrounding the army of the Lamanites. More importantly, there is the unity of the rescuers coming to the rescue of their brothers and sisters, a unity to mission and purpose. We are here to rescue others. Those whom we call brother and sister need to be treated as a brother or sister. Are we unified with our purpose here, as was Moroni to his purpose? Conclusion This story is another contrast provided by Mormon of a leader who begins by swearing to seek death and ends by his humanity and preventing of a bloodbath. This is the contrast of Moroni, a man of great physical courage and moral courage. He can lead in battle, and yet he can stop his men from being butchers. These examples make the historical and military aspects of the Book of Mormon stand in rich contrast to the contemporary events of the ancient world, where such dominance as Moroni enjoyed in this battle would have resulted in a tremendous slaughter that would have been hailed by the chronicler as a great victory. 
Moroni received the letter from Helaman too, close on the heels of the end of this battle. He then knew of the success in the West, and he realized that the Nephites were now on the advance with the real opportunity to win in the near future. Moroni clearly had to have his hopes raised, and thus it is so simple to see both his excitement and then his frustration with the lack of support from the government in Zarahemla. Our next episode deals with the kingmen and a campaign that had been going on without the knowledge of any of the chief captains for some time. This was a precarious time, as in the exchange of letters between Moroni and Pahoran, one can see the concern about who to trust. Could anyone be trusted? It makes for a kind of psychological thriller, which Moroni breaks through like a charging bull, as we will see. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.